0: Welcome to the Art and Science of Learning podcast, where we explore the best practices, technologies, and research shaping the future of learning in the workplace and beyond. I'm your host, learning specialist, Dr. Kinga Petrovai, In each episode, I speak with industry leaders, academics, practitioners, and learning designers about different aspects of learning and development. These conversations weave together insights from around the world and across industries to inform and inspire innovations in lifelong learning. Hello, and welcome to the 100th episode of the Art and Science of Learning podcast. This is a very special episode to celebrate this major milestone, and I quite can't believe that uh, that this is where we're at. It started for me some years ago, where I had the idea to bring together voices from both the research and the practice of learning. I was meeting and reading about so many fascinating researchers who were doing incredible work, and also meeting people in the field who were developing best practices, having solutions in the workplace that were really enabling learning. Um, I went to organizations that were creating technologies who were facilitating learning in a variety of different ways. And I just wanted to connect all of these different ideas and people and bring them into one conversation. And that is how the podcast was born. And of course, selfishly, I just really wanted to have the opportunity to talk to so many of the incredible people that were doing great work in the way that we learn. And so this has been an incredibly rewarding and enjoyable journey for me where I've learned a lot, starting from the fact that I didn't know anything about podcasting. So I learned so much about the software, the hardware, and what one needs to do in order to make a podcast to come to life. And then, of course, learning so much from all the incredible guests that I've had on the show cutting-edge research and different practices, interesting companies, it's a full spectrum. Now, in this episode, I really wanted to invite two people that I admire greatly, both as learning professionals and also for being podcasters as well. They both have learning podcasts that are incredibly successful and the fact that they have gone far past the 100 episodes. They also really bring together the research and the practice, both of them having a foot in each. My first guest is Professor Chris Didi, who was also my professor and advisor during my master's program. So it is very special to have him back on the podcast. Professor Chris Deedy was the Timothy E. Wright Professor in Learning Technologies at the Harvard Graduate School of Education for 22 years, and currently he is the Senior Research Fellow. He is also the co-founder for the Silver Lining for Learning podcast and initiative. His fundamental interest is developing new types of educational systems to meet the opportunities and challenges of the 21st century. His research spans emerging technologies from learning, infusing technology in large-scale educational improvement initiatives, developing policies that support educational transformation, and providing leadership in educational innovation. Currently, Chris is the co-principal investigator in the NSF-funded National Artificial Intelligence Institute in Adult Learning and Online Education. And my second guest is John Helmer, who I've met several years ago at the Learning Technologies Conference in London. And we just had such a fascinating conversation about learning and podcasting. And since that time, I have been following both of his podcasts, which are absolutely fantastic. John Helmer is the owner and senior consultant at John Helmer Consulting, as well as the founder of two highly successful podcasts, The Learning Hack and the great minds on learning. In his consultancy, he advises businesses in communications and marketing. As a pioneer in digital marketing, he, is, he co-created and promoted more than 30 training courses on using the internet for marketing and business. He is also a published novelist, lyricist for the group Mary Leon. He has been on the top of POPs and also won a Perrier Award at the Edinburgh Festival. It was such a pleasure for me to be able to talk to Chris and John about their latest work in the field of workplace learning about how they started their podcast, what inspired them, and also what they learned along the way after many more than 100 episodes. I was curious to find out what they learned and what they are doing next with their podcast. And also, of course, to find out what's top of their mind on the latest developments in the learning field. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoy our conversations. Hello, Chris. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm thrilled to have you as part of this very special episode. Thank you for being here.
1: Well, thank you. I really enjoyed the last time we talked and looking forward to another sharing of ideas.
0: Before we talk about podcasting and, and your podcast, I would like to touch a little bit on the work that you are doing. You're doing something new and different. Can you tell me a little bit about the work that you're doing now?
1: Sure. So um, throughout my career, which now is half a century along, I've uh, looked at emerging technologies for learning. And two of the technologies that have been part of that over the decades have been artificial intelligence and immersive learning. And of course, both of those are now at an exciting stage of their development. And they're also interacting with each other. Uh, I've always been looking at adult learning because I teach adults and also teacher professional development is about the adults that teach children, but a lot of the uh, development that I've done has been for pre-college audiences and it's really in the last five or six years that I have shifted to looking more at workforce upskilling and reskilling and capacity building, which gets into issues of adult development because in some ways, a 28-year-old, a 42-year-old, and a 56-year-old are as different from one another as a first grader, a seventh grader, and a 12th grader. So it's a, it's a fascinating area. Uh, and one of the hats that I wear now is that I'm uh, a co-principal investigator and director of research for the uh, national ai institute in adult learning and online education which is a workforce related group and another is that we have now the next level lab at the harvard graduate school of education something supported by accenture that started four years ago Tina Grotzer is the director and that also is workforce capacity building so it's been It's been fun for me, I uh, get bored easily and so I'm in the perfect field because I have to reinvent myself every couple years to keep up with what's happening.
0: Yes. And that, that is very exciting because you really have looked at learning technologies and learning through all the age ranges, which is so important. And when I was your student at Harvard, of course, we were talking more about and learning technologies in school. But as my work also has shifted more towards workplace learning, I've been really excited to be reading what you what you've been doing through the years and moving in, into that space more and more. Can you tell me a little bit about the center at the Harvard Graduate School of Education focused? on workplace learning. And that's often departments of education at universities are not really looking at workplace learning, but can you tell me a little bit about the work that is happening there?
1: A lot of the training and capacity building and education of adults for the workforce is, is really based on older conceptions of teaching and learning. And not a lot of new um models coming out of cognitive science neuroscience the learning sciences and so on and so um tina grozer uh, my colleague at at harvard and i um started this next level lab drawing a lot on tina's expertise in cognitive science and neuroscience and it's been a, a really interesting journey because we've involved Um, some postdocs, we've involved some visiting scholars, we have wonderful master's students like you who participate in the work of the lab. And one of the, uh, I've helped to develop two briefs, which are like research summaries. One of them is on not AI, but IA, intelligence augmentation, which is what happens if a human being and an AI work together well and the other is on dispositions, because certainly in a world as turbulent and uh, challenging as the one that we live in now, having dispositions that can support you through the tough times are really important as adults. So um, it's been great to be part of the lab and interacting with my colleagues and students, and, and um, we're continuing to develop interesting things. The project that I'm doing now that's associated with the lab is to look at ways to teach negotiation to um, adult workers, particularly to people from marginalized groups where negotiation can be very important in terms of being able to, um, you know, be treated with the respect they deserve and to be valued as, as they deserve. And I'm very fortunate that Professor Mike Wheeler from the Harvard Business School, who's an international authority on negotiation, has been willing to be a subject matter expert. And we're working to develop some pilots. But the vision is eventually to develop roughly 10 hours of training for negotiation in one hour chunks. And to make that available essentially for free, Uh, To anyone that wants it online through a license from Harvard. And it's been fascinating to try to design that training, taking advantage of the latest aspects of immersive environments, of artificial intelligence, and then insights out of cognitive science and the neurosciences. So
0: that's fascinating. So it's good. It's good. That is absolutely. And that is definitely something that a lot of people need to learn and would like to learn and that you're going to be using technology to help them achieve that. And how does technology help to enhance the learning of negotiations?
1: Well, negotiation has always been taught with practice involved. Yes. Because it's a skill that really you develop through practice and guided feedback. But it's, it's difficult to find the partner for practice In negotiation training because another student can be your partner, but they don't necessarily know how to play the role of a boss Mm -hmm. or of somebody else that you're trying to negotiate with. And you can hire an actor, but that's expensive and and limited in terms of how many people get to do the practice as opposed to watching the practice. And so the development on the AI side of chatbots is. Valuable because with careful controls, a chatbot can mimic, you know, someone that you're trying to buy a car from or someone where you would like a raise. And similarly, a company called Mersion that I advise her to does digital puppeteering, where instead of an AI behind the simulated person, You have a human being, a simulation specialist behind the simulated person, Mm -hmm. and that allows a whole nother dimension of negotiation, because, of course, people can emulate other people much better than any form of artificial intelligence. So how do you mix and match those if you're trying to develop negotiation training, and especially if you're trying to deliver it at, at essentially very low cost?
0: Well, that's fascinating and really exciting area to keep an eye on and to see what, what you are doing in that field. So, thank you for sharing that. Coming to your podcast and coming on to this episode, which is a special episode to celebrate my 100th episode. And you have certainly far surpassed that. And you started the Silver Lines of Learning podcast and videocast. And it's also live on Saturdays. I wanted to learn about how you got started, what you learned throughout this experience. Um, but first, I wanted to ask you, what inspired you to start this podcast?
1: Well, there were a number of us who all started it together. And we did this the week of th- that everything shut down in the pandemic, mm. uh, in March 2020. Yes. And through email, several of us who were identified as experts in online learning, but from different universities and different settings, said you know this is terrible and it's wonderful and it's terrible it's terrible because it's a terrible human tragedy it's wonderful because now people are finally going to be forced to see the power of online learning and it's terrible because they're not prepared to do it and so they're going to do it poorly poorly."
0: that's right yes
1: and blame the online medium rather than the fact that they're not prepared so we said let's let's just do something quick so no sponsor, no brand, just self-funded will every Saturday will do an hour that's essentially a conversation. It's not a webinar. It's not a panel. It's a conversation. And we'll celebrate something powerful that's happening somewhere in the world that has been enabled by the pandemic. That's the silver lining and that deals with powerful forms of remote learning. And we said, you know, in 10 weeks or so, when the pandemic's over, then we'll stop doing this. Well, that wasn't a good forecast about the pandemic. And even now that the pandemic has receded, we're learning so much and we're developing such a wonderful archive of innovations across the world that we've just kept going. We're doing episode 166. But it it really is not something that I could have done alone, and I really admire you for for your ability to do such an extended series of powerful podcasts on your own, because the fact that there have been four of us for most of the series, each of us has a different voice, each of us has different connections in terms of people we can invite, we, we've gotten to know each other pretty well, even though we're not co-located by doing these conversations together. And so there's a kind of fun, e- you know, emotional interaction in the way that you see on, you know, shows where the people doing the show have been working together for a long time. And it, it's just been a delight. So I'm that was how it started. And none of us ever thought that we'd be where we are now, but as long as we're making a contribution, and as long as we're learning ourselves, I think we're just going to keep it going.
0: Oh, well, absolutely! It's a it's a great podcast, and you bring together so, not only you, the creators, are coming together, but also you're bringing together so many different people and voices from around the world in each episode, actually, because it's several people coming together in each episode, and it's a wealth of knowledge fascinating to listen to.
1: Yeah, we've we've published an article about this in the Journal of Digital Politics that's on the Silver Lining for Learning website. And basically what we said is that there's a lot of top-down knowledge about innovations that comes from articles and journals and people presenting at conferences, and that's great. That's the tip of the iceberg and there's this huge iceberg under the water, people who will never publish in a journal, people who will never go to a conference. But they're doing amazing things and so silver lining for learning is kind of a bottom up mechanism of surfacing those people and those models, letting them articulate in their voice what they're doing. And then others across the world who might want to do something similar in their region, who might want to adapt the model, have a way of reaching out and finding out more and interacting with those folks.
0: Very important because, especially in the field of learning, there's so many different voices from different sectors, not just regionally all around the world, but from different fields. And from grassroots practice to to academia, there's the whole spectrum, everything Every field is affected by some form of learning. Bringing that together is extremely important. But what do you hope to achieve with the podcast? Well,
1: I think there's there's sort of a tactical achievement, which is that we publicize what the next episode's going to be on. They co- it, They cover a very, very wide range of interesting innovations and topics. People who are interested in that can either... Uh, view it live, or they can view it later, or they can listen to the podcast later. And so we're reaching audiences with information that they're not going to find through another venue. They're not going to have the opportunity to talk with these innovators in in any other way. Strategically, we've got this enormous archive now of modern models that have been successful and potentially are scalable that's really exciting i use some of them in my teaching some of the cases my colleagues do the same we're encouraging people anywhere to do this as part of their teaching i think one could put together an entire course at this point about you know global innovation global south innovations in technology and use these cases as, um, you know, edited material from which students could have really rich discussions. So we're hoping that the archive yes. itself will have a, a life of its own because we're really focusing on learning more than technology. Even the older episodes are really about really interesting and powerful models of learning. So there was an episode, for example, episode 12 is on fan fiction. It's one of my favorite episodes. The technology by which fan fiction communities are, are meeting now is different, but the model of peer feedback and emotional attachment to writing is, is still the same.
0: Now that you've done over 160 episodes, I'm sure you learned so much about podcasting in itself. And, and I want to ask you that in a second, but in terms of learning, I mean, you are a global expert in learning and you've been in the field for a long time and leading the field in that. But is there something that you learned through these podcasts about learning?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I, I've been teaching literally for more than half a century and I still learn something every time I teach a course. I tell the students that's not so much because I'm a slow learner, but because learning is an extremely complex human activity. I keep finding new dimensions, new richness, new technologies that evoke kinds of learning that weren't possible before and so on. I see people who have said to themselves, I know everything. I don't need to learn anything more. I'm the world expert in X. And the minute that you say that, you're dead in the water. I've tried to keep the humility that I think is really important of saying every time I interact with someone, they have something to teach me about learning. If I'm open to learning myself and if I listen carefully to what's going on. And certainly that's true in Silver Lining for Learning because we're interacting with people in settings that I'm never going to go to probably. And who have expertise that I will never have. And it's wonderful.
0: Something that is so important for people that you can never stop learning. And that is certainly something that you pass on in your courses and your classes and in your interactions, which is really valuable. But in terms of podcasting, you starting a podcast and you started it with different objectives of just doing it quickly for a short amount of time. What did you learn about podcasting since you started?
1: Well, I I think that one insight that all of us had at the beginning because this is very much a collaborative activity what it's not like one of us is the leader and says here's what we're going to do it's all bottom up and it's four people with different styles of teaching and learning which is part of what makes it work i think is that we have different styles and different frameworks but the idea that it's a conversation we we've, we've all set through a million webinars and And no matter how interesting the webinar is, especially online, you know, 10, 15 minutes in, your mind is wandering. And if it's a panel, yeah, then you have different people, but there's still that kind of 10 or 15 minutes of sitting and getting. And the nice thing about the conversation is we say to our guests, we're happy for you to have 15 minutes that you want to contribute but do it in five three-minute chunks instead of in one 15-minute block. And that works really well because if you've got somebody interesting in three minutes, you've got something you'd like to talk to them about. That's the conversational aspect. And if they talk for 15 minutes, the first four three-minute things are gone. And maybe you're left with the one at the end. Mm -hmm. So I think the conversational format, while it's not familiar for our guests, works well. And it also means they don't have to prepare Mm. anything major. And if it's a global audience, people are reluctant to speak if they're not used to it. And if you have to prepare while you're really busy, why make time for silver lining for learning? I'm doing powerful things right now. So I think the conversation is really a crucial format that makes this work.
0: Of course, you're an expert in learning technologies. And I think podcasts are somewhat underused as a learning tool. People, of course, think about it as, oh, I listen to a lot of podcasts, therefore, and I am learning. And of course, you are learning about something. But it's rare that podcasts are used as a learning tool. How do you see that actually in the field and developing?
1: When I was in graduate school, I was very much influenced by the work of Marshall McLuhan, speaking of someone from Canada (laughs) who was a major figure in media studies at that time. And McLuhan talked about hot media and cool media. Something like a book or a podcast is a cool medium you basically have a a linear stream of material that's coming to you and your imagination takes over and enriches that linear stream. So you read a novel about Harry Potter and you imagine Hogwarts and Harry Potter and what everybody looks like and so on. A movie is a hot medium. There's no room for your imagination. Your imagination may be stimulated by somebody else's imagination who has this wonderful vision that you couldn't have come up with. And, and so you enjoy that vision. What's lost is your own kind of interpretation. And I always say to my kids, if you're going to go to something where there's a book and a movie, Read the book first, because if you don't, then when you read the book, the only thing you'll see is what was in the movie. Mm -hmm. Podcasting is a cool medium. I do a lot of talks and with slides and videos and, you know, visual and so on. And that has its place as kind of a hot medium. But I think people who are listening intently to a podcast and who are kind of constructing imagination around it, because it is a limited medium, are actually giving themselves a chance to learn something different, something that's more within themselves. And so I think it has a definite place.
0: What do you think people should really understand about the medium itself to be able to make it a good learning experience?
1: I think our most successful episodes are narratives, storytelling. It's kind of a commonly held insight that people are really wired for stories Mm. that that's a lot of how we learn it's motivating and it also is integrative and so the narrative in a podcast can become if not a story then maybe some vignettes that are like stories and just as with the book and the movie the podcast is an audio experience gives you the chance to kind of resonate with that story, maybe add stories of your own. Maybe when I talk about starting Silver Lining for Learning during the pandemic, people think in a podcast of, oh, here's something I did during the pandemic to help with my sense of isolation. And, you know, it was kind of an interesting learning experience, and I miss it now. I miss it Mm -hmm. because I abandoned it when when the pandemic receded that isn't necessarily something that they would get if i was just doing an exposition with slides which makes my narrative more powerful but also undercuts in the moment people seeing relationships to their own narrative so it's sort of both and i'm I'm not trying to say one is better than the other i think that they are interesting and being different and reflective and It would be interesting to do research where, I'm sure this isn't universal, it probably varies from person to person, but if you listen twice and one time is video and one time is audio, which do you do first and how is it different between those two conditions?
0: There's definitely different ways that we interact with different mediums and ways of learning. Being able to leverage the strengths of the different technologies for that is really important. In terms of your own podcast and looking back, is there something that you wish you had known when you started this?
1: Well, we were very late to think of podcasting. I don't know why we had that blind spot, but we did like 120 shows before we said to ourselves, it's crazy not to turn these into podcasts. And then we had to recruit alumni and get some help in transforming the vast majority of the earlier episodes into podcasts so that was something that we just should have thought about at the beginning and done at the beginning i don't know that there's any other big change that we've made we've thought about i mean it's basically four old guys which you know from a from a diversity perspective isn't so great but we have a kind of chemistry and a kind of collective expertise that works for us and so what I've been saying to people is there's room for many more podcast series and somebody else you know four young women could do the same kind of theme what's happening globally in terms of learning and and have different episodes and different insights and different everything it's we're, we're not close to covering the ecosystem. It's not so much that changing Silver Lining for Learning as a brand as it is trying to say, look at it as a model and then adapt it mm-hmm. to uh, whatever works, or, or look at your podcast series as a model and then adapt it to whatever works. And I just think that it would be better if there were more of more of this. People might learn more, than putting the same amount of energy into writing scholarly articles in arcane journals that are read by maybe five other people. <laughs> but, but that's heresy, right? That's heresy. Yes. I don't want to be excommunicated from that's Harvard, right. so I have to be careful.
0: But you're saying that there's room for more of the conversations about learning uh, that, that should be had.
1: Absolutely. And our our conversation is shaped by who we are. And -hmm. there's many other perspectives that would come out of different groups that would be very valuable complements to where we are.
0: Fantastic. Yes. Although there is a lot of different podcasts out there, but in terms of learning podcasts, there there is definitely room to do different things. Just having different perspectives is so important. And so what are your plans looking forward for Silver Linings on Learning?
1: Well, we'd like to find ways to promote the archive somehow, mm-hmm. because I think that's underutilized as a resource for teaching. But we don't have any great insight on how to do it. We've been looking for a philanthropist that might put in $30,000, $50,000, because we think that we could clean up some of the archive, make it better more searchable keywords on all the episodes and so on Mm -hmm. so refinements along those lines and the four of us meet occasionally and we say well what should we be highlighting now what kind of episodes aren't we doing that we should be doing more of so we did a bunch of episodes on climate but should we go back and revisit that now with these dramatic changes how many episodes on AI should we really do, and so on. So I think that, that looking at what the major themes should be at any particular point in history is another thing that we don't do systematically, but we talk about and based on our individual instincts.
0: I look forward to seeing continued development and how you continue to evolve in the podcast and the different stories and perspectives that you bring in, because it's really very, very interesting, a great learning experience. Before we end, I wanted to ask you in terms of the field of learning, you always really see ahead and see what is interesting and innovative. And I remember from your classes and in each conversation we had, I've always learned of something I should be looking at in this field. What are you most interested in now in terms of you're working in AI, in workplace learning? But maybe more specifically, what are you looking at?
1: I try to write things that are provocative in a good way, Mm -hmm. that suggest to people that their visions are too small in one way or another. So during the first year of the pandemic, I wrote, you know, five or six op-eds, blog posts, really short, open access articles that took provocative stances on what was going on. In summer 2022, as we were coming out of the pandemic and as everywhere was throwing out the remote learning that they'd been doing, I got mad and I wrote an article that published in an academic journal about hybrid, that the world is hybrid now. And if education wants to go back to not being hybrid, all they're doing is graduating students who were ill-prepared for the world. And then this past summer, I wrote um, three things. Uh, one of them was about generative AI, basically that it isn't as smart as people think it is, and that it's dangerous to let it do your thinking for you. One that was upon massive online learning, uh, we had an episode in January 2023 where we had Uh, people from Harvard, MIT, and Stanford talk about what those universities had learned during the pandemic that was going to shape their classroom teaching now. Part of what I advocated for in that episode is that MOOCs were the wrong model, but the aspirational vision of massive learning is a good vision, based on what happened during the pandemic, both in terms of insights and infrastructure, we could do Massive Learning 2.0, not to try to fix MOOCs, but to sort of start over and do Massive Learning 2.0. And the article described what that might look
0: like. And what is your main point in the terms of uh, Massive Learning 2.0 for people to have a bit of an insight into what you're doing? The main
1: point basically was, and this came out of of the reports from the three universities. MOOCs taught us how to do content at scale, but not how to do engagement at scale. Absolutely. And so Massive Learning 2.0 has to be based on engagement at scale, and one of the things that many people, including me, like as an initial framework is the community of inquiry framework Yes. from Randy Garrison. That's another thing out of Canada Yes. <laughs> where, you know, the student presence, teacher presence, and and presence of the cognitive inquiry are all important. And so the article basically argues that we have all the pieces in place that we need to do this and that we should form a coalition of groups and do Massive Learning 2.0. I don't know that that's going anywhere, Uh, but writing these provocative pieces, as a way of trying to get people to see an opportunity or to expand their vision or to not throw away the baby with the bathwater, which is what's happened with remote learning, Mm -hmm. is another way that I try to influence the field.
0: You spoke about the engagement being the next step, and engagement is something that is always coming up in, in learning technology and in learning in general. What do you think people are missing in terms of making engagement a success? That's something a lot of learning designers struggle with, what do you think that they're missing? I, I'm sure there's a lot that that you can talk about that, but maybe one one aspect
1: that... Sure, something quick. Yes. So when I went from full-time to part-time as part of you know cutting back and moving, I don't know that I'll ever retire, but moving towards a different pattern of activities. I had the choice of which course to keep, and I kept the course on motivation and learning because I think motivation is so understated in learning design. And that course, uh, which is about engineering motivation into learning, it's an applied course in motivation, does have a bunch of material on engagement and flow, which is what most people think of when they think of motivation. Mm -hmm. But it also deals with self-regulation and executive function, which is another part of motivation. It also deals with beliefs like growth mindset, imposter syndrome, stereotype threat, and so on. And it also deals with dispositions. And I think those four pillars, I mean, you can argue that there are more than four. Four is about what I can cover in a semester. Those four pillars are, are key to engagement because you can make something highly engaging. But if you don't have the self-regulation, the beliefs and the dispositions, to go along with it, it's not going to succeed.
0: I think that also highlights the fact that making something engaging isn't a quick fix. In so much of my work, often people say, I want to make it engaging. Can you put in videos and make it uh, fun and colourful? Really missing the mark on understanding the fundamentals and uh, what you pointed out to really shows that you actually need to go on and learn more and understand a lot before you can make something genuinely engaging.
1: Volcanoes, dinosaurs, and zombies. I mean, it's just the whole wrong way to think about these things.
0: (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. My goodness, this has really been a wonderful conversation as it always is. Thank you so much for sharing your insights and knowledge about your work, but also in this episode, more specifically, your podcast, Silver Linings of Learning. And thank you very much for being a part of my special episode. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Well, thank you for
1: what you do with your podcasts. And uh, we'll all just keep on trucking.
0: Yes. Thank you very much, Chris. Hello, John, and welcome to the podcast.
2: Hello. I'm enormously flattered to be asked.
0: Well, oh, thank you very much for being a part of this podcast and a very special episode. And I'm thrilled to have you because I've been really enjoying uh, your two podcasts, The Learning Hack and Great Minds on Learning for, for quite some time. They're an absolute wealth of knowledge and uh, and really interesting podcasts. Thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome. Well, before we get to talking about podcasting and, and your podcast, first, I would like to talk a little bit more about what you do outside of podcasting, which is your business, helping uh, learning companies in so many different ways. Can you tell me a little bit about the work that you are doing right now?
2: Yep. Um, I think you positioned me in, in some of the stuff you sent over as being a learning expert. But really, if I have any expertise, it's it's in communications Um I early on had a kind of performing career in the creative industries. And when that uh, finished, I um, started working in marketing. I I went to work in a West End advertising agency. I've done some work in PR to direct marketing, which became digital marketing. And then I really got involved with the Internet by doing courses, which I kind of ran up uh, together with them. SMEs on digital marketing, how to use the internet, which at the time was a fairly new thing, and then got headhunted to go and work in a learning company for that, which was epic uh, that Donald Clark ran and was doing about 50% of the learning content production in the UK at the time. So I I managed to get in at the the beginnings of that industry and I've kind of stuck with it ever since. So I've become a learning expert by dint of that kind of 20 to 25 years experience rather than with, with any kind of qualification or background, you know. i very underqualified. All I have is a, a BA in English literature. And there are loads of us about, loads of English literature BAs around a surprising number in the tech industry, actually.
0: That is very interesting. And, if, I mean, you have a wealth of knowledge in the field of learning. And if anybody listens to your podcast can definitely see that. In terms of the podcasting, you have two wonderful, very popular podcasts that listening to it is like you get an education in learning. So can you tell me what inspired you to start these two podcasts?
2: I think the, the, the sources of inspiration were kind of many and varied. But if I can kind of narrow it down to one moment, I was at an awards ceremony where, where I'd done the submissions for a, a company that I, I had as a client. I, I say I, I work freelance and I, I advise companies to help them with their marketing and more and more now help them to do their own podcasts. Uh, this particular thing, I'd done some uh, award submissions. Come- we went to the award ceremony. Always a nervous moment for the person who's done the submission because everybody glares at you if they don't win the award. Uh, but while people were still having their kind of opening drinks and so on, uh, I bumped into a, a past client of mine, Lisa Minogue-White, who came up to me and said, oh, she's documenting the event. She was recording interviews um, and doing spot interviews. And when I say, you know, 25 words uh, uh, about the event, and then she stuck this device under my nose. And I was like, what is that thing? Um, and what it was, was a really compact sound recording device, battery operated, handheld, but it actually gave you broadcast quality output. And I, I kind of knew uh, that, I've known some kind of radio journalists, I knew they had these things called Ewers, which were sort of the size of an old fashioned transistor radio and uh, a bit clunky to, to, to cart around. And, but it was the first time I seen one of these things. Um, so I got one and started using it for my day job at the point, which has lots to do with facilitating workshops uh, and recording the output to shape into a, a, a report. Um, I did a lot of interviews with people for a magazine I was I was running for a company mm-hmm. um, and there I'd record those mostly for transcription. Had to be turned into text, but at the, at the back of my mind, I knew about this thing podcasting. I thought you could use this thing to expand the possibilities of your media output. You know, back mm-hmm. in those days, it was all blogs and white papers and so on. Right. But I realised as the bandwidth was increasing. You were getting more video, and um, and there was podcasting there, which was always I always thought was a possible source of content marketing, and you could kind of um, as that bandwidth increased. These other media would come into play and you know i had uh written and appeared in a channel 4 tv series at one point so i knew about that side of the thing so i thought this is the way it's going to go you know we're going to get more and more media uh and then i got made redundant i had to restart up my because i had a, a kind of day job at the time and i had to start up the consultancy again and i thought it would help to have a bit of profile so why don't I start a podcast about learning? And There weren't many others around at the moment. Actually, um, I couldn't see any. In the time I was conceptualizing and putting it together, uh, David James' podcast came onto my radar, and I realized there were other people doing this. And I think there, there, there was another one which changed its name so often. I can't remember its its current name. But that, that seemed quite good. So I went and appeared on theirs, and... I thought I'd better get mine out quickly because there's only two others and it might end up being a crowded field, which has proved to be the case. The appeal to me, the inspiration was really that with this little device, you could go anywhere and you could talk to anyone. And I had a lot of contacts in the industry and you could make content with it. Simples. And it was just that simplicity that seemed really great to me. I and mean, as to what I learned from podcasting, the main thing I've learned is that it's not that simple.
0: Exactly. That is definitely something that uh, one learns very quickly, as I did as well. It certainly isn't as simple as uh, as one thinks. But you were in from the very beginning. And and that's fascinating that from the very start, you saw this potential and you were getting into the field. Can you tell me what you were hoping to achieve? I mean, first, you you mentioned that you were hoping for your consultancy to get a little bit more exposure, which I think is definitely something that why a lot of companies start their podcasts and, and sometimes individuals. What else were you hoping to achieve with your podcast at the, at the start?
2: I, I think the main thing is that I, I felt a real drive to tell people things about learning theory and technology that are really interesting and important. and I wanted to help them get a better understanding by bringing a range of views that's you know not just what one person thinks but what several different people feel filtered through a highly individual perspective, which is mine, and really the kind of emotional roots of that. Uh, I I went to a lot of learning conferences and and sat through a lot of talks and and so on. And I would never ask questions at the end because the questions I wanted to ask (laughs) were ones which I think might have made the speaker too uncomfortable. And as a marketing (laughs) person, I didn't want to kind of tarnish the brand by coming across as, you know, Mr. Angry. I, I was kind of frustrated by it because... The, his conference appearances because it was such a broad conference is such a broadcast medium in a way. I mean, I know you do get a Q and at the end, but um, it, the the form of it is, is different. And I, I felt there were people I wanted to challenge. There there were other people who I thought were incredibly interesting, but they might only have a twenty minute presentation. You know, the ideas was I'd, I'd really love to kind of talk to them and, and unpack it a bit more. So as I say, I was running a magazine at one point that gave me the chance to interview a lot of interesting people. And I just found that fascinating thing to do. I, I can't pretend that I developed a great interviewing technique, although I've learned a few things along the way. It was this idea that you could get somebody and challenge their views and get them to bring out things you were more interesting and then interested in. And then the next week, fortnight, whatever, you, you have a completely different guest on with a completely different set of views. And you can then say, oh, yeah, but I had so-and-so on last week and, and she said, and it's different to what you're saying, how do you react to that? And I think through that kind of, it's through that jostling of perspectives and different ways of, of framing problems that we're, we're all facing that I, I think innovation comes out of that and knowledge and learning and all sorts of good things. So I felt as if I was doing something that was giving a contribution um, also, I was enjoying it and it, it, it did give the, the profile a bit of a boost.
0: One of the things I love about two podcasts is that you do really focus on the theory and something that often in learning is not taught and not understood. There's a lot of people and a lot of different types of people in the learning field. But having an understanding of the research and the and the theories that are the foundation and that people should really understand it's not always understood, but the great minds on learning, that's exactly what you're unpacking. It's, it really is like a course uh, understanding the foundations of all the great thinkers in this field, which is so critical.
2: Now, great minds on learning has a very different format from the one I've just described, which is about yes, different people all the Exactly. Time. Great minds on learning, the format is more kind of Boswell and Johnson, with me, with me as the cringing Tony Boswell. <laughs> So right. tell us why, well, why is, you know, master, why is master give us your learnings? I mean, it, it's slightly different to that because I, I come at things to a different angle um, to, to Donald, who's read absolutely everything. So the the, the dynamic is not that you're getting two wise people talking about learning. You're getting yes. a wise person talking about learning um, interviewed by another person who's perhaps more interested in the fact that this academic had a mountain in Australia named after him. <laughs> you know, B.F. Skinner kept it, allegedly kept a child in a box. And I've heard this, Donald, is that true? And so on. I suppose to speak more seriously, I, I do bring a kind of biographical focus to the learners, which I think um, positions it slightly different from Donald. So there's kind of parallax parallax there. And I'm also very concerned to make sure that there's this difficult thing that um, Kahneman says about experts and other people say about SMEs, how difficult it is for the expert. After a while, after they know as much as Donald knows, as much as he's read, to make that clear to other people, because they've forgotten a lot of the kind of early steps through which they ascended to their, to their current knowledge. Getting the, the, the knowledge out of SMEs requires a lot of the times the mediation of people, be they designers, interviewers, whatever, who, who know less. And it's fantastic for me because it gives me the license to ask some really dumb questions of a very smart person.
0: Looking back, what have you learned about podcasting? The
2: thing I've learned about podcasting, really, which I'd like to bring to the fore, is, is kind of the intimacy of the fact that it's a voice speaking in your ear. And that somehow is much closer than a broadcast medium like television. It's a network medium as well, podcasting, as much as it is a broadcast medium. I mean, I mean you say that uh, I was in podcasting for the beginning. Well, very much not really. I was in the, the beginning of podcasts about learning. Uh, but podcasting goes back to the very early days of the internet. It was very much an underground, sort of nerdy pursuit. Uh, first time I really learned anything about it was uh, meeting a friend of Brighton about a, a dinner party, who who was a Radio 4 producer, still mm-hmm. is, but his absolute passion was podcasting. Um, and he was introduced to me by our ebullient host as saying, oh, um, Julian goes on and on about this thing, podcasting, that nobody in the world cares about apart from him. <laughs> Um, must be an
0: interesting did, dinner conversation.
2: Yeah, he's now doing the Jonathan Pye uh, podcast for, for the BBC, which um, Brits will know about uh, and, and so, on, so on. But the difference is because it comes out of the internet, the difference between a broadcast medium and talked about Julian a bit with this is that it's a, it's a network medium. And you find that with the, every time you interview a guest, it kind of gives you an into their network. And that's really how you build your audience. It's quite sneaky in a way, because <laughs> rather than paying money to to promote the thing through marketing channels, you, you hire a guest who's very well connected, and you, you get kind of organic growth in your 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 sort of marketing reach. Mm. But also, there's there there are network effects that come out of that that are really interesting because you introduce guests to other guests, mm-hmm. and so on, and you become part of this very loosely formed community of people who have spoken on the learning hack. I've, I've, it's a, uh, I find it's the thing that is, it's a real door opener. And once I've interviewed somebody, I'm friendly with them in a way that I never am when I meet them in person at an exhibition or something, because it's not like our first contact has been, I've been trying to sell that person something or market something to that person, you know, you know, the grounds of how you associate in a, in a much better way. So so you build a network, which of course is not only personally advantageous, but networks are, are very valuable, especially in a knowledge field. And I could talk about that for hours and hours, but I won't.
0: Fantastic points. And you you frame it really beautifully because networks in a knowledge field, as you, you said earlier, people have different approaches, different views, different ways of thinking about learning, because it is an extremely diverse field with a lot of very different voices in it. Uh, so it is important to bring that together and to network and to understand each other a little bit better. I haven't heard someone describe podcasting in that way. It is described as an intimate format where people are talking into your ear and often the listener has a more um, emotional connection to their favorite podcasts than, than any other medium. So you were you talking, not only do you have all this experience in creating your own podcasts, but also advising, you said you're advising companies on how to create theirs. Yeah. What are some of the important aspects that come up again and again that you think really podcasters or organizations wanting to create their own podcast should really understand and, and think about?
2: First of all, there, there, there is a thing that I pinpointed as a key learning, which is that it looks very simple and it isn't. Yes, there are lots of affordances that come from podcasting as a form, but there are also kind of drawbacks and not so much drawbacks as, as important limitation. If I can give an example of that, one is brand, which, are, you know, very dear to my heart, I've kind of worked a lot with companies on that. And how do you do that in a form like podcasting where you don't have the visual cues? I mean, normally when you talk about brand, people think of the logo uh, and visuals do, do play a, a massive amount in how People communicate their brand to the extent they very often ignore some of the other and in some ways more important aspects of it, like tone of voice. Who is this company? Oh, I can see they, they've got that blue wiggly thing. So when I see that blue wiggly thing, I know it's them. But more importantly, you know, who is who are these people that are talking to me? What is this company that's talking to me? What is the tone of voice? Is it strident? Is it lecturing me? Is it uh, something a bit more interesting that's that's kind of drawing me in? Um and that's kind of really important in, in podcasts. So when, when you're kind of setting up a podcast, you need to to estab- establish its personality, it, its brand. and all of that really, you know, you you do have you put logos on your on your podcast when they appear in people's apps. but but the greater part of the personality of that uh, thing as a brand, is going to be about how it talks to you. Uh, It's about tone of voice. It's about format as well. It's um, uh, about things like how do we use humour in here? Because, you know, in a normal brand exercise, you'll use a lot of very expensive creative talent, and a lot of that will be directed towards kind of video and imagery. Um, All of it has to be done, really. The lion's share of it has to be done just through this single visual channel Mm -hmm. Um, and you'll know from your learning theory that when you cut down from sort of having multimedia to just one channel uh, you you get certain great benefits from a learning point of view Um, we know that because you know cognitive load sweller and so on Uh, when you don't have to think about the pictures you focus much harder on on what you're listening Uh, but the same reason that means to be that means that you have to be very careful about things like, you know, as podcasters go on in their careers, and, you know, I find when I talk to other podcasters now, you'll, you'll end up in these conversations where people are very excited about a new type of AI that takes all the breaths out <laughs> to make, you know, it's more engaging if it's simpler to get in, um, to, get, to get into it and to hear it, to process it. And a lot of this is about taking out friction, uh, and your format will be about that world as well you know how quickly can i get to 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 the content without too much throat clearing at the beginning um how do you communicate the personality of the thing without that throat clearing at the beginning so exactly how long should it be you know kind of a 30 second intro and then you have ads in this to to fund it and where do you put those how long do they take up so in kind of planning your own podcast there are, there are a lot of factors to To take into, in, into consideration, I mean, you know, I've talked a lot about brand there, but there are a lot of others as well. Uh, there are things like, well, how, how am I going to find out if it's working? How am I going to find out if people are listening to this, um, whether they like like it? Another massive thing is the context of use. Context of use is something that people in uh, UX talk a lot about in terms of the user experience. What are people doing when they're listening to this? You know, what else are people doing? You know, they're walking their dogs. It might be folding laundry. They're driving a car. People often feedback to me, "Oh, um, I had this massive great train drive to do, to uh, road drive to do to to Edinburgh. So I loaded up with a load of Great Minds on Learning podcasts and went through the whole lot." You know, you have these behaviours like binging now mm-hmm. in media, which is a new thing in 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 media, really. Um, and and, it, and in terms of planning the format of uh, your, your your podcast you have to take all that stuff into consideration. You know, we want people to binge this. If they do, how do we stop it being annoying? You know, how do we stop one person talking for 20 minutes at a time from being annoying? We need other voices. We need a diversity of voices. You know, should you have a uh, diverse presenters rather than just one and so on, which which I've done a bit. Um, And then how does that become a part of the thing? I mean, just, just one last thing I'd say about that is, uh, I get very worried about not changing up enough. You know, I, I, I tend to stick to, to the formats quite rigidly because like you, I don't have that much time because I have to, you know, have another job. It's a side hustle. Uh, and I beat myself up about this. But then I just noticed a while ago, I started people coming back to me talking about little aspects of the of the format, like um, Kate Fitzgerald uh, is our head of fact and I have a head of themes, Jay Curtis as well. And the introductions we do, they, they each do a little piece. And it's got about the people know now that the, um, that the head of fact, Kate Fitzgerald, is actually my wife. Um,
0: oh, I see. I didn't know that. Music. Yes.
2: Yeah. So so they'll make jokey references to, um, and how is the head of fact? And, you know, the head <laughs> of fact the head and the fact that people start to bring these things up. Mm-hmm. So you kind of feel like they've lodged and you think, well, if I take that away, they won't they won't be happy.
0: No, and it's a fantastic, uh, I really enjoy that format. And you, well, you spoke about so much that we could have unpacked um, yeah, yeah, right. in what you said, which is extremely valuable, but I I love that you said you take out friction and the importance of taking out friction, because so often in learning, people talk about, oh, I want it to be engaging, um, and missing the fact that one of the most engaging things is taking out friction, making it easy and accessible uh, for people. And also when uh, when you when thinking about how they're listening to this uh, you put in really nice little breaks into the podcast where there's a different sound so to kind of bring you back into it uh, having that learning design into the into the podcast which which helps to trigger people oh yes i'm coming my brain is coming back to making sure that i am listening
2: yeah i think it, it's it, it came home to me how important this was through learning a bit about learning learning theory and friction. And and I think it's Bjork um, who who says that you have to have necessary difficulties within learning, but on the way to getting the learning and to engaging with those necessary difficulties. You know, and the difficulty is friction. Mm -hmm. You you don't get any learning without friction. Yes. Uh, And I think it was Leonard Hoot said to me that, you know, everything on the way to the learning has to be absolutely frictionless so there's a i think friction is a, is a key concept and you know in banking they talk about friction as being that's where you make your money mm-hmm. you know, if you get people to to leave it in the bank account for two days longer you make money that's friction that's right to but do the work.
0: necessary friction that's a really good thing to keep in mind really
2: necessary because you can't
0: make everything easy and fun but it's the necessary friction and then everything else to be frictionless yeah. i love that everything.
2: The more frictionless everything that surrounds it is, the more that that's where you're really kind of nailing the the engagement piece, I think, and I I, I don't see that being very wide, wide widely known. I think the engaging thing people think that's about doing all those marketing things of you know this is fun and hand waving and blah 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 and you'll get these benefits and so on, but there is a kind of user experience thing which is, which is a deeper consideration. Yes, in communications, you the second board, and it's rooted in learning theory as well.
0: Yes, absolutely, very important. And is there something looking back that you wish you had known? I mean, you learned a lot and you've you you came to recognize, for example, that you don't need to change your format. people like the fact that it there's consistency. But is there something you wish you had known when you started your podcasts?
2: I think that's a difficult question to answer because um you know it's been a ride, and yes largely enjoyed the ride and it it is about kind of encountering because we're doing something new you know when i started there were only a few other learning podcasters so there there wasn't much to learn from um it it is about leading and bleeding uh and you know the the difficulty and the pain of it is in that bleeding but also the 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 the, you know the 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 enjoyment and the, the kind of stretch you personally is is about going through that thing of you know terrible problems coming up getting rid of that problem and so on because in with that there's also accidental victories that come up you know the, the really fun things that happen that uh-huh. um if you'd known about it from the beginning they wouldn't be surprises you know <laughs> so sort of the ups and downs are, are all part of it so i tend not to be that interested in counterfactuals in history and current affairs and anywhere else for that matter so it's kind of hard to say if only i'd known this but an example of a kind of really accidental victory is i'd, I'd done a couple of the podcasts already and i was surprised that you know people listened to them and we seem to be getting listeners coming along um fairly easily but nothing uh ridiculous uh and then um i decided to do a, a, a video trailer with iMovie which came free with my computer um and i happened to interview nick shepperton jones for that um for that podcast who I, I didn't actually realize at the time but he is box office you know he he, he would always draw people to uh, his conference talks and so on uh, but but the combination of the, the kind of jokey jokey beginning which really focused on his um him as a killer of sacred cows and his own existing profile just meant the thing went through the roof uh, on LinkedIn. This is the only experience I've had of this where your phone is kind of going ding, 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 <laughs> ding. Um, Amazing. and well, suddenly overnight, you know, we 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 got sort of uh, really respectable numbers just because of that that one thing. But it was it, it it was purely accidental. It's very hard, you know. Marketing people will never tell you this because they they want you to think that they're geniuses. No one can predict what people are gonna go for and what's gonna go viral, what they're gonna like. They can tell you what usually does well and, um, you know, what happened last time, um, what algorithms like and so on. But nobody can really predict the future. Um, mm. and that's the fun bit of it. So if you've taken that out by giving me a load of foreknowledge, you know, don't do a video version. You'll have 10 times the work and a tenth <laughs> of the numbers. Um if I'd done that, I wouldn't have learned to video edit, which was fun. And without yes. giving the podcast a, a visual presence and identity, which social media will do to you, do for you, you know, because you can't actually put it in the podcast. And that's really helped me with promotion, I think, and and made it stand out.
0: That's wonderful. That is a, a lot of interesting insights and uh, and and valuable lessons that you learned. And as you said, it's a journey where. Uh, you you don't know what you're going to learn and come upon and uh, accidental victories. I mean, you said that when you came into the field, there was very little on learning podcasts, and now it's quite a saturated field. Um, but is there something that you see with this bigger perspective uh, and and experience that you have that you think you wish would be happening, but isn't?
2: I think the I'm, I'm re- something I'm really interested in is. The use of podcasting as a as a learning medium itself, oh, yeah. learning podcasts for for organisations and institutions to use, and it's slightly disappointing that that's a bit slow. Um, mm-hmm. we, we have a guest on podcast, Adam uh, uh, Lacey, I think from um, Assemble U, who are doing very good work in creating. Um, podcasting content quite small bits of kind of micro learning and so on uh, but I think there's a lot more people could do, they could do in kind of developing the more long-form podcasting as as a learning medium uh, it, it's got a few problems which have to do with access um it's pretty difficult getting a podcast onto an LMS yes <laughs> being, being the kind of main one um, and if you're going to use the kind of public, Media for that, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and so on—the place we all get them from. How do you make that specific to you know a particular knowledge area, a particular cohort of learners, and so on? And how do you how do you do access? So to so access and all those things are problems that have to be sorted. But I I think they when people begin to grasp the the potential. At the moment it's very much thing for individual learning. I think uh, you know the the example I gave of how we all boned up on generative AI very quickly. Um, that was all done through individuals' sort of need to know, and because we were professionally involved in that, we had a uh, we, we had a motivation for it. Um, if you're dealing with kind of a group a cohort of learners in an organisation, say, how do you apply that same methodology? And I I think a lot of the barriers are just, you know, um, people who make LMSs just are not prepared for that change of content. You know, the development of digital content has been massive and and baffling and puzzling for many people. You know, you look at how we're still trying to process social media and how that works. Um, And learning companies, unfortunately, have to say, are a little behind the curve. It takes them a while to come around to it. Uh, so I do see a big future for um podcasts as learning but um let me put that another way we're in an interesting early area uh, that I, I i want to be involved in because it's always going to be you know Absolutely. a bit of bleeding I don't want to do too much bleeding at my age but there you go
0: <laughs> wonderful that is uh, yeah that is an exciting place that there's a lot of growth and uh, and needs to be designed with with thought and and care. As you said, there's a lot to be included in making a podcast and any learning experience, truly learning worthy. So in terms of looking forward, what are your plans and, and hopes for your podcast looking into the future?
2: Well, survival, as you say, it's very okay.
0: <laughs> So, um,
2: All right. Obviously, like everybody else, uh, every other content creator, which I suppose what I am. I, I, I want more reach. Yes. Uh, we're in uh, 120 countries, and you know, we have probably about a thousand uh, views and listens per episode, and we're coming up to kind of 100,000 overall. Um, so, so that's pretty good, but by the standards of world podcasting, it, it, it's niche. Um, I don't know where the ceiling is for that. Um, I, I suspect there's a lot more because I'm always running into people who just don't know anything about the podcast. And don't know about anybody else's podcast either. So like, yes. I think there is room for expansion. Uh, like every other content creator, I want to put a zero on the end of my numbers <laughs> um, because eventually then it becomes not a side hustle, but something you can do full time, which I'd love to do principally because you can then do it better. You can bring more resources to to, to extending what we do, especially on the, the video side, which is the, the really expensive part. Uh, yes. And also more events and you know, different formats and whatever. So, so selfishly, that's what I want for the podcast.
0: Wonderful. And there is, as you said, there is so much to do with them and uh, a lot of exciting things that it feels some in a way that it's just at the beginning of, uh, of being, of really leveraging all the opportunities that podcasting has to offer. And in terms of learning, what's top of your mind of what's exciting for you in the field of learning?
2: Well, AI, duh. <laughs> yeah,
0: that seems to be the...
2: <laughs> we that being... trip over yeah.
0: that answer all the time.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's a problem. Yeah, you'll find this as I do when you're writing your questions list. Um, how do I position the AI question? without? Me? <laughs> how do and we yeah. get
0: past it? Yes.
2: Yeah, having said that, I, I suspect that generative AI could, you know, nobody knows the future, I said, but... I, I, I suspect that it could prove slightly less significant than we thought for learning. I mean, very useful for content creation. And that's where people are really digging into using it at the moment. People I talk to like, especially you know, adaptive content people, but um, in, in normal sort of learn tech content production workflow, I, I see it getting very important, very embedded, mm-hmm. changing the, the, the shape of the, the, the production. Um, but in the in the long run, it might be different types of AI, I think, that have more radical effect. And it's interesting when you talk to people in the adaptive field who've been using AI for quite some time. Um it's that thing you often get from technologists that they don't want to poo-poo what everyone's talking about at the moment, because what everyone's talking about at the moment is a is a wave on which they are surfing. <laughs> Um, in, in terms of you know the the, the clicks and the eyeballs are, are, are there, so we don't want to say anything against it. But there is a slight feeling that you know we've been doing this for youngs. Um, Generative is only one part of the whole pie, and the other bits may, in the long run, be much more significant. Um, don't get me wrong; I think it will massively affect jobs, and jobs are on the workplace learning side of it, and on the education side, a really important part of what what drives uh, the learning industry. It might be that professional learning professionals will have more to do in dealing with the ways in which generative AI, AI in particular affects jobs and what's going on in the, the external environment than with using it uh, for learning per se. But um, let, let's talk about that in a year or two and I, I may be proved to be completely wrong. Um, and then I think data, is, again, something people talk bang on about all the time, but I, I recently interviewed a, a company called Valamis um, based in Finland, and I thought they are really interesting because their model really is centered in data in a way that a lot of LMS other companies companies aren't mm-hmm. just because of the limitations we've had historically with, with SCORM, which you know put out so few data points. <laughs> I think companies that are basing their solutions in data are really ones to watch. And that's really interesting because it it could be, again, but I uh, hate to do predictions, could be that, that we are on the edge of a breakthrough in evaluation of learning impact. For years, people have been saying nobody evaluates, but suddenly, you know, we're awash with data. People have lots of data mm-hmm. and there are some indications from certain kind of analyst reports and so on. Um, that the certain amount of solutions that, help people to analyze data um, are, are in, on the increase and the interest in actually doing it, it may well be on the increase in um, organizations as well. I can't speak to the education side so much on that. I mean, you know, still going to be running exams in 100 years, I've thought, but um, certainly on the organizational side, you know, there, there are signs that there'll be a breakthrough in evaluation.
0: Mm. Yes, because and and something that everyone's really looking forward to because there everyone is always asking in workplace learning how do we know it's working and in a lot a lot of the types of learning that happens in organizations is very hard to measure and very hard to quantify so um, developments in that area are highly anticipated and a lot of interesting things are happening and both in terms of podcasting and in the field of learning. As with listening to your podcast, I've learned so much in this conversation and uh, absolutely enjoyed it thoroughly and uh, wish we can go on and on. Um, But John, thank you so much for being a part of this special episode and joining me in celebrating 100 episodes.
2: Well, congratulations on that. And it's been an absolute pleasure to 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 have you on the other side of the table, so to speak. (laughs) I felt in very safe hands with a very competent professional and intelligent podcast hosts and log may you continue I, I, I think your podcast is great and uh, it's been a, a great honor and a privilege to be with you here today
0: thank you so much john greatly appreciated. thank you